Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We are getting ever closer to the big day, Halloween that is. I know that I've been watching my favorite scary movies all month long, so why not add some scary stories to that as well? Let us begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was a monster hunter, now the monsters are hunting me. Written by Doomed Geek I was locked in a customized coffin. This was a desperate measure for desperate times. I used to work for a secret organization called the Department for Strange Affairs, which was based in an underground chamber below central London. Night after night, I faced danger hunting down monsters which plagued the city. The ordinary people who worried about work and relationships, and paying the bills and the extra pounds that they'd put on that month, they had no idea about this battle to keep the world safe. But I had lived and breathed it. Returning zombies to their graves, capturing destructive ghosts, and putting slimy river beasts out of action had all been a part of the job. I also had a run-in with werewolves, only I had been careless. One of them had bitten me, and I was left carrying the curse of lycanthropy in my veins. I had been placed on indefinite leave from the department as a result of this, and I was feeling pretty low. Being a monster hunter had meant everything to me. But that was the situation that I was in, and I needed to deal with it. My initial priority was preparing to face my first full moon since I had been bitten. When I was working at the Department for Strange Affairs, I was always on the night shift, so the days were meant for sleep. The problem was, this being London, there was a constant noise outside, from sirens and car stereos and roadwork, and people shouting in the street. And there was also the hammering and drilling bleeding through from my neighbor's property. They were renovation freaks. The solution to my problem was inspired by an encounter with a vampire that slept in a coffin. The next day, I bought a top-of-the-range casket for myself, and I had it lined with silk, added air conditioning and vents, soundproofed it, and I slept like a baby. But now my situation had changed. I had customized the coffin for a second time, replacing silk with steel and adding a locking mechanism on a timer. I wanted to ensure that I could not get out during the full moon while I was transformed into a werewolf. And now the time had come to see if the coffin would hold. The full moon had risen. Locked in the customized coffin, I could not see the moon but I could sure feel it. It was pulling me, harder and harder until it felt like it was tearing me apart and exposing the darkness inside. I started to convulse. I was struggling to swallow, to breathe. I could feel bones breaking and muscles twisting. I could feel sharp pain all over my skin. I screamed. Only it was not a man's voice that emerged. It was a howl, the cry of a beast. I lashed out, felt claws strike the steel lining. They scratched deep, but they could not cut through. I howled again. I was in so much pain. Not from the change because I was the beast now. I was the darkness. 
I howled with hunger. With the desire that raced through me, I needed meat rich with blood. I needed a heart that still pulsed to crush between my teeth and gorge myself on. But I was trapped and tortured, and alone for hour after hour, until the full moon had faded. It was dawn and my ordeal was over. At 8am, the timer released the lock. I felt very weak by this stage and I wasn't sure if I even had the strength to lift the lid. But I managed it and I dragged myself out, stumbled into the bathroom, and then stood there in the morning light, breathing deeply. I half expected to see dark, matted fur covering my body when I looked in the mirror. But I was ordinary. A man that no one had noticed on the busy streets of London. I looked tired and pale and I stank of sweat. Boy, did I ever. I spent a long time in the shower, alternating between as cold as I could stand and as hot as I could stand. When I finally emerged, a wave of dizziness overwhelmed me and I almost fainted. But this passed and I knew that I was going to be okay. I had made it. But still, I shivered as I recalled the hideous events of the night and decided that I needed some fresh air. I put on a tracksuit and my trainers, lined up some tunes on my phone and I left the apartment. I did some stretching exercises and then I started off jogging, following the course of the river. I tried not to but I kept thinking about the department. I missed my job so much. I sighed and stopped running. I looked down into the water. Even on a late summer's day, the river was dark and cold. Litter drifted by, carried on the tide. I felt lost and upset and one question kept replaying in my mind. What next? I had no idea. But I did know that standing around feeling sorry for myself would solve nothing. I took a deep breath, clenched my hands into fists and turned the music up and began to once more run. I increased my speed steadily, zoning out the people around me, and started to feel both calmer and more energized. I ran for hours, not caring where I was heading and it felt good. I finally came to a halt on a street that I did not recognize. There is a coffee shop on the other side of the road, an independent one rather than a branch of a faceless chain. I was thirsty and for the first time, that day I had an appetite. I was just crossing over the street when I noticed the van pulling up ahead of me. My old job had trained me to be hyper observant of anything unusual, and the van had set off an internal alarm. It was very bland looking with regular plates and looked in need of a wash. There were two men in front, both casually dressed, both checking their phones. Most people would have not given them a second look, but I could not take my eyes off them, because everything about them in the vehicle that they were in told me that they worked for the Department for Strange Affairs. Were they there because of me? I wondered. Were they following me? The department had a dedicated monitoring team with access to CCTV cameras throughout the city, and many other ways of tracking people and uncovering information. They would have been able to follow the route of my run with ease. But why? Why would the department want to keep tabs on me? I could only think of one answer and it made me feel sick to my core. 
They were following me because I was a monster now, because they thought that I was a threat. Feeling cut adrift was bad enough, but this, this was a nightmare. My appetite lost in the nausea now cramping my guts, I started to run again. There was no point in me confronting the two men in the van. They would only be following orders. What I needed to do was speak to the man who had been my supervisor at the department. He had been my boss for years and had always had my back. He was an ex-soldier and always immaculately dressed in a tailored suit. He also had an old-fashioned prosthetic leg, which he refused to have upgraded. I had a lot of respect for the man, so I would speak to him in private. I would be honest and reassure him that I had measures in place to prevent my lycanthropy being a danger to anyone. I would trust him. I once more increased my pace and weirdly I started to feel better. In a very perverse way, the situation was helpful. Before, all I had was empty hours to fill. Now, I had a purpose. I had a mission. My supervisor lived south of the river. I did not know his address, but I knew his way to work. If I could intercept him, persuade him to give me five minutes of his time, I believed that I could succeed. And the dogs in the van would be called off. I had reached the entrance to an underground station. London's vast network of tube stations and lines was world famous, but there were parts of the system which very few people knew about. Before descending the steps, I looked up an old map online on my phone. This could work, I thought, and then I hurried down towards the platform. I was surrounded by commuters, all connected to their phones and disconnected from each other. Pretending to be absorbed by the screen of my phone, I blended into the crowd. About halfway down the steps there was a door marked out of use. Quick as a flash, I picked its lock, darted through and slammed it closed. Darkness enveloped me. The sounds of footsteps clattering by filled the space, and then a train hurtled past somewhere close but out of sight. Using the torch on my phone to show the way, I moved into the darkness. From the map that I had called up earlier, I knew this passage led to a platform that had been closed down 50 years ago. There were a number of these across the network, all abandoned because they were outdated or underused. I walked out onto the old platform. Faded posters still lined the walls and decades of dust coated the floor. It was an easy drop down to the line. This was no longer in use either and I was perfectly safe as I walked along the tracks. Safe from trains and electric shocks, and from being tracked by the Department for Strange Affairs. No one had eyes or ears down here, and I could get closer to my destination using this method. For the first time that day, I smiled. I had left the old platform behind and was now moving through a tunnel. It stretched ahead of me for over a mile according to the map. I ran the light from my phone over the tracks just in front of me to check that there were no debris that I might trip over. And then I raised the beam and looked out into the tunnel and inhaled sharply. A dozen feet ahead of me a spider's web filled the tunnel. It must have been made by a single giant arachnid or a multitude of smaller spiders. The web was vast. It was stunning in its scale and complexity, but my eyes were drawn to its center, 
where a body hung suspended in the web. It was an adult, a man I saw, as I played the beam of the torch along its form. He was not moving. And questions burnt inside me. How had he come to be here? Was he like me, a fugitive, seeking a hiding place? Or was he simply looking for somewhere warm and dry? Whatever had driven him here, his fate had been truly hideous. Caught in this monstrous web. Taking deep breaths to try and calm myself, I moved towards him. He was silent and still, and I feared the worst. It was not till I was within touching distance and could see him clearly that I understood just how bad it was. It was a corpse held in the web. The remains of a man who had been consumed from the inside. The spider or spiders who built this web and trapped this human prey must have laid eggs inside of him and the spiderlings had fed on his flesh. Until this was all that was left of him. A husk. The shell of a once living and breathing person. I was repulsed and in serious trouble because, without meaning to, I had touched the web, sent vibrations out along its length, and alerted its makers. Not one huge spider, but hundreds of them, each the size of my hand and all emerging from cracks in the tunnel and scurrying towards me along the web. In moments, I would be in the embrace of their legs and become a new nursery for their young, a new source of nutrients. I span round, meaning to run back the way that I had come, but more spiders had appeared. The floor of the tunnel was alive with them, and they were scurrying towards me. I turned again, even if I threw myself at the web with all my strength. I would not break through it. I would be trapped, held while these spiders crawled up my legs and into my clothes, onto my face and my hair. There was, though, another way. I couldn't hesitate, not if I wanted to escape. I ran at the emptied out corpse. It was the one weak point in the barrier between me and survival. And the husk did break, leaving me free to run, leaving the web and the spiders in my wake. I was running blind and saw a door ahead of me. I did not bother picking its lock. Instead, I attacked it with the heel of my boot. Its wooden frame splintered and I was through. I was standing in a bright place. A tube train was pulling away and I was surrounded by people. They were looking at me with shock and disgust in their faces and backing away. I looked down on myself. Strands of web that I had picked up in my escape clung to my arms and legs. I cursed. So much for staying off the radar. I was broadcasting my position to the Department of Strange Affairs and now they would just not want to track me. They would want to bring me in. I ran for the barriers, vaulted them, and scrambled up the steps and out onto the street. I glanced around, looking desperately for the best route away from there. There was an underpass to my left, and it was covered in graffiti, and the ground around its entrance was thick with litter. On the plus side, any CCTV cameras in it would no doubt have been trashed by vandals. The last thing I wanted to do was head back under the ground after my recent encounter, but I could see no other choice. I dashed towards the underpass. A cocktail of nauseating smells hit me as I entered. I clamped my hand over my nose and mouth and kept going. 
My eyes were soon watering as well, blurring the gross words and images spray-painted on the curving walls of the underpass. This was the absolute pits, but there was a faint light ahead. Not far to go now, I thought, and I raced for the exit. I did not see him emerge from the darkness which lingered at the base of the walls, but I sure felt him. He slammed into me and sent me flying, and I ended up sprawled on the ground. I gasped and tried to get up, but pain shot through my side where he had collided with me. I cursed at the man standing over me. He grinned back. His teeth were dark and dead stumps. The skin around his mouth was cracked and peeling away. The rest of his face was smeared in dirt and his hair was hopping with fleas. And he stank. He smelled like an open sewer in a heat wave. I would have cursed him again, but his odor was so bad that I could almost taste it. I kept my jaws clenched to tightly closed. He leaned in closer and seemed to be studying me. One of his eyes bloodshot, the other was lost beneath a weeping yellow infection. And then he spoke, his voice harsh yet quiet, a distorted whisper. You need to pay me to pass, he said. A coin or a morsel of food will do. I'm partial to chicken slathered with a spicy sauce, but anything will do. And a drink to go with it. That would be fine indeed. A red wine, something fruity. But if you have none of those things, don't worry and don't stress. I'm in need of an eyeball as well, and yours looks shiny and clean. A good healthy eye, just one. You can keep the other. I'll just pop it out, shall I? I'll be real quick. Why, you won't even have time to blink. A long, filthy fingernail was reaching for my left eye, teasing itself into the corner of my eyeball. I felt sickened. No way. I muttered and lashed out. He collapsed to his knees and I shot to my feet, hurtling his prone form and sprinted for the exit. His hideous toll would be going unpaid. I emerged from the underpass and got my bearings. I still had miles to go and streaks of scarlet in the sky told me that dusk was near. Time was running out for me to intercept my old supervisor and plead my case. There was a taxi rank in sight, with just one taxi waiting. Trying to keep out of sight had not worked, so I decided to go for it. I raced over to the taxi, jumped in, and gave the driver a destination. As the driver started the engine and pulled out, I heard the click of doors being locked. This was pretty standard. It prevented the passengers leaving without paying. What was far from usual was these security grills descending over the windows and the glass partition between me and the driver. They were firmly in place when the driver said, I've been instructed to bring you in. You're clearly out of control and a code one threat to the public. I slammed a fist against one of the barricaded windows. I was furious. I had walked into this jail on wheels, this trap laid by my old employers. I'm still loyal to the Department for Strange Affairs, I told him. I believe in order and peace. Yeah, sure. He replied with cynicism clearing his voice. I began to shout. You have to believe me. I used to be just like you. A monster hunter and a good one. I was dedicated. I put my neck on the line again and again. Yeah, tell it to the bosses, he said and sped up. I could just about make out the traffic surrounding us through the narrow gaps in the grills over the windows. 
progress on London's roads was often slow and frustrating, but I could see that he was turning off a main road and moving along a back street that was much quieter. I could also see these streetlights were coming on, their white glow cut into pieces by the grills. I sat back, trying to think of a way out of this. If the bosses were convinced I was a threat, they would throw me in a cell underground, most likely chained to the wall. A bowl of slop would be pushed through the slot twice a day and once a month a bucket of freezing cold water would be thrown over me in place of a shower. I never gave much thought to the monsters that I had caught being treated this way. I figured they deserved it. Now this was my fate. The savage irony was not lost on me. The fake taxi that held me prisoner swung aloft. It was fully dark outside now and I could just about see the rundown industrial units lying in the road. There was no other traffic as far as I could tell. This driver's route was off the beaten track and the scenery left a lot to be desired, but I could only assume he knew exactly where he was going. Time was slipping away from me and freedom would soon be a memory and I was helpless to do anything about it. I closed my eyes. A sharp bang on the roof of the taxi snapped me out of my doleful reverie. It sounded like someone had dropped a concrete block onto the roof. Something like that. Something hard and heavy that had landed at speed. A second collision shook the vehicle. It was still moving at speed but was veering to left and to the right now, as if the driver was trying to avoid something. What was happening? I peered out of the window and caught a glimpse of movement through the security grill. I had seen wings, long and sleek, cutting through the darkness, and suddenly I understood. We were being attacked. A third powerful impact came seconds later. The metal of the roof crumpled and the taxi skidded to a halt. I was thrown forward and face-planted in the partition. Pain spiraled out of my nose. I thought that I had broken it. I moved slowly back into my seat and was quietly groaning when a long, dark, sharp object smashed the window next to my head and then cut through the grill. I sat there holding my busted nose, warm blood dripping down my chin and licked up into the eyes of a vampire. There were points of darkness in a monstrous face that was like the shotgun wedding between a bat and a man. Its ears were flattened against the side of its head and its nostrils flared in a wide nose. Its skin was wrinkled and scarred and its mouth was open, revealing yellowed fangs. Its breath smelled of decay and death, of a world beyond the grave. I said with a bravado in my voice that I did not feel. He got some serious hygiene issues, boy. The vampire snarled and reached into the back of the taxi. Hideously, sharp talons protruded from where the fingers and toes would have been on the human that this creature used to be. It had used one of the talons to break into the taxi, and now it hooked run around my neck and pulled me out. I landed in a heap on the ground. The smoke was rising from the front bonnet of the taxi and its bodywork was trashed. The driver was still in his seat, but he wasn't moving. I looked away from him. I had been angry with him for capturing me, but at the end of the day, he was only doing his job, and now he had paid the ultimate price. I peered up at the vampire and said, You make me sick. More of the foul creatures circled the remains of the taxi, some on the ground, some in the air. 
I had thought being a fugitive from the department was my lowest point, but that was a walk in the park compared to this. The vampire which had broken me out of the taxi hooked its talons into my belt. Its wings flashed and I was being lifted. I was rising into the air. The buildings of London stretched out below me. The office blocks in the apartments, the churches and the shops. The new and the old intermingling and rushing past as I was carried through the sky. A derelict factory rose up before us. It smashed windows staring out over a wasteland. The vampire swooped and carried me through one of the windows. I was aware of the other creatures entering to the either side of where I was now being dangled precariously. Dozens of feet below me the ground was layered in darkness. If it dropped me now, the last thing I saw would be that darkness rushing towards me. But the vampire was toying with me. I was helpless in its grasp an object of scorn. It cackled and began to lower me towards the ground. As we descended, I could hear the voices of vampires all around me. There was a multitude there, many more than had attacked the taxi. Their voices were hoarse and distorted, and then joined in saying one word over and over again. Blood, blood, blood. They were chanting this. The vampire carrying me finally dropped me a couple of feet above the ground. I fell, landing painfully, but forcing myself to sit up without delay. I had nothing left now but pride. Hope was a distant memory. There were no lights in the factory, but my eyes were beginning to adjust to the darkness. I could now make out the vampires who had been proclaiming their foul litany. They crouched, shoulder to shoulder, sneering and grinning and licking their lips with disgusting, flickering tongues. I seemed to be in the center of a circle of them and there was no possible escape through their massed ranks. But a space was opening up, because they were moving aside, for a monster from the depths of a nightmare, a walking, breathing abomination. It shared the twisted, merged features of the others, but its ears and nose were pierced, and it wore what looked like chillingly like human bones as jewelry. Its skin was cut as well. Swirling symbols had been carved into it, and on its head, it wore a crown of razor wire. The barbs of the wire cut deep into its scalp. I started transfixed as this creature approached me. It loomed over me and its mouth opened. A line of barbed razor wire was embedded in the flesh of its tongue. Fear rushed through my body, primal fear. There were things worse than death in this world, and I had always known that. And now I was looking pure evil on the face. The vampire smiled and began to speak. Its voice was the cold wind which freezes your skin. Its voice was the cold wind which howls unseen in the night and screams a terror. You, it said, you killed one of us, our kin. It slept in its coffin and you came and you drove a stake into its heart. Killer. The other vampires had been silent, but now they took up this last word and began to chant. Killer, killer, killer. It was like some obscene echo. The vampire, which wore a crown of razor wire, raised a talent to quiet them. And then it continued. And we will have a revenge. 
We will take it slow and savor every moment. Every second of your agony will be nectar to us. And once we have finished with you, we will deliver your body to the Department for Strange Affairs with a warning written in your last few drops of blood. The vampires will no longer skulk in the shadows. We want to rule the city, and we have come together for the first time tonight, and we shall fight as one until every last stinking human cowers before us or flees. There will be no other way. Its vile plan revealed, the vampire reared up, and then fell on me with a sickening speed. I felt its fangs cut into my flesh. Pain cascaded through my body. I felt its razor-wired tongue moving on my skin, and nausea and disgust possessed me. This was it. This was the end of me. But suddenly the vampire recoiled. It threw its head back and roared. What is this? Your blood is tainted, poisoned. You are not a man alone. You carry the curse of the beast, the lycanthrope. It spat the blood that it had stolen from my veins onto the ground and it looked at me. Hatred burnt in its eyes. And then it said, quiet this time, in a calm, calculating voice. There are other ways to destroy you. It raised one of its talons and moved it towards my throat. Your werewolf blood will be spilt here and now, it whispered. I said a silent goodbye to everything and everyone I had known and cared about. I watched as the talon came closer. I watched as the world exploded into light. Clouds of light bursting all around me and high above, light cascading down. And carried in the light were voices shouting, We have you surrounded. Surrender now or pay the price. The sudden light was making my eyes hurt. It was making the vampires curl up in agony and scream. I could make out figures descending on ropes draped from the windows, and more rushing in through a door. The building was being stormed. I recognized a couple of the faces of the people racing towards the vampires. They were former colleagues at the Department for Strange Affairs, and they and the other men and women flooding the factory were brandishing crossbows loaded with wooden stakes. If any of the vampires stepped out of line, they would be swiftly and terminally dealt with. One man among the department's forces was unharmed. He moved through the crowded space looking calm and suave. He wore a three-piece pinstripe suit and tan-colored brogues. His gait showed that he had a prosthetic leg. It was my old supervisor, the man that I had been trying to reach. He walked up to me, smoothly sidestepping vampires that were being dragged out of the way and asked, How are you? Still breathing, I replied and mighty confused. I owe you an explanation and an apology, he said. We had been hearing rumors that the vampires were planning a mass uprising, that the loners and the various gangs were being drawn into a plot led by a particularly nasty individual. We knew the best way to foil them was catch them when they were all gathered in one place, and to do this we needed something to lure them. I scowled, beginning to understand what the department had done. You used me as bait, I growled. He nodded. And for that, I apologize. We knew the vampires had a reason to hate you after you had killed one of their own. And with you an outcast from the department, they would see you as an easier target. They did not go to plan, and I'll always regret the loss of our driver. 
but we got there in the end. The vampire Duchess neutralized for now. He turned away and surveyed the scene of organized chaos unfolding around us. The vampires were being forced into cages. The ringleader was in chains and being led to his own personal steel prison. Then my old supervisor looked back at me and said, Which leaves me with a question. When can you start work? The department wants you back and I want you back. We will find a way to deal with your lycanthropy, which doesn't interfere with your role as a monster hunter. I didn't even need to think about my answer. Forget it, I yelled. I trusted you, I respected you, and you used me. And then I walked away. Alone and pulsing with anger, I walked out into the night. The darkness promised mystery and danger, and I was not afraid. A big thanks to Ghostbed for sponsoring this week's episode. Can't get to sleep. Maybe it's nightmares or maybe it's just an uncomfortable mattress. With Ghostbed, you can finally get the scary good sleep that you deserve. For more than two decades, Ghostbed has been making mattresses, pillows, and other sleep products designed for maximum comfort and support. Tired of waking up in a cold sweat? Every Ghostbed mattress features signature cooling materials, including their patented Ghost Ice technology, so you can fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Get fast and free shipping with most orders shipping within 24 hours. Plus, you'll get a 101-night sleep trial with free returns if you're not 100% comfortable on your new mattress. For a limited time, our listeners can get 30% off Ghostbed mattresses plus two free pillows. Use promo code MrCreeps at ghostbed.com slash creepscast to take advantage of the offer. That's ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code MrCreeps. I participated in a university experiment and was the only survivor. Written by 10-Minute Horror. I feel like I should be more grateful and that everything could have been so much worse. But the thing is, the experiment worked. In a way, and now I know. The conductor of the experiment, Professor William Hardin, was known around campus as the Hard Drive. He was blessed with an incredible ability to process and retain information of every kind. Though he was primarily a physics professor, leading infamously difficult courses on thermodynamics, analytical mechanics, and quantum entanglement. He held PhDs across multiple STEM fields, and his interests continued to expand from there. The sum of which was allegedly solving the issue between the differences in teleportation of information and matter. It was also rumored that he had been awarded multiple government grants from the defense, energy, and health sectors. Of all the things that he was known for, one of the more interesting was that every year, Hardin held interviews for whatever personal experiment he had been working on that semester. It was always an open offer to any PhD students at the school, whether they were studying a course in his department or not. There were English lit PhDs lined up next to PhDs in philosophy, mathematics, world history, and religion. 
as well as both MD, PhDs in medicine and healthcare, for a dual physician scientist. Hardin didn't discriminate. He wanted people from everywhere. Hardin was an optimist and the goal of the experiments were to inspire. He had always felt incredible gratitude when he was present and able to witness the research, trials and experiments of other scientists, especially those in other fields. He wanted others to have that same opportunity and experience. Ultimately, Hardin believed in humanity and was infinitely hopeful for our future. And he knew that successes in the future laid with us, the next generation of students. It was said that Hardin always found ways to incorporate his dynamically diverse volunteers into his experiment. The whole process was incredibly secretive though, and the students had to sign NDAs before they went through the rigorous screening methods to choose the candidates. Therefore, no one outside of the experiment ever knew what happened in it. Ever. There were rumors of how that was achieved. Some were related to the extensive violation penalties in the NDAs that would essentially sign your firstborn child away if breached. Then there were rumors about how Hardin had figured out a way to identify, select, and permanently erase memories. If you asked any of the students who were involved, they would genuinely say they remembered every second. But they were Fort Knox after that. They wouldn't budge on giving any details or even hints. The NDAs held them tight-lipped. This created more fascination and wonder with the experiments. So being selected was considered a deep academic and personal honor. I was in the last year of my doctorate program in clinical psychology, specializing in neuropsychology and psychopathology. So I had no link to Hardin or any of his classes. My only knowledge of him was through word of mouth. It was nearing the end of the term and the flyers for Hardin's new experiment were found scattered across campus. I didn't expect to get picked, but I threw my hat on the ring anyway. And then they called me. I was told to come to the mathematics building, where I would need to sign an NDA before anything went further. And this is where I met Liz, Hardin's assistant. After the NDA, she hooked me up to a polygraph and pointed several cameras from different angles on me. I assumed they were monitoring for changes in facial expression or body language. Liz started off with a modified and highly advanced Weichler Adult Intelligence Scale that focused heavily on mental processing speed and the Perpetual Reasoning Index. As I went through the first portion, it was apparent that they wanted to specifically measure my nonverbal abstract problem-solving abilities and quantitative reasoning. They wanted to know how well I could make sense out of the senseless. I was then put through a series of three heavily modified emotional intelligence tests relating to trait EI, ability EI, and mixed EI. Personally, I wasn't a fan of the EI test before the adjusted and somewhat provocative ones I went through in that room. They're manipulated by design. They work the same as most IQ tests in that there is one predetermined answer for each question. But with IQ tests, you have to do the work to provide the answer. A skilled sociopath could game EI tests by knowing and giving the correct answer 
even though they might do the opposite in a given situation, which is why measuring EI is incredibly hard. I was then asked to talk about myself in great detail, fractioning my life into two-year segments moving backwards. There were deep and personal questions, questions about my philosophy and views on humanity. It was more difficult than my master's thesis defense, but I felt like I answered everything clearly and honestly. And then they asked me the final question. Why was I there? I blanked. Seconds passed and I had nothing. Liz stared at me waiting. Finally an answer came to me and it was truthful. I said, because I want to be a part of something much larger than myself. Three days later, I received a phone call from Liz. I was told to come back to the mathematics building. When I arrived, I was greeted by Liz, Professor Hardin, and Hardin's older brother, Brian. If Hardin looked good for 75, Brian looked like an Olympian at 78. They had similar faces but vastly different builds. Hardin was your typical looking but healthy physics professor. Brian looked more like an explorer. Sun-kissed skin and muscles hardened by time. But they both carried the same welcoming smile. I was informed that I had been selected to participate in the Damocles experiment and that it was the culminations of Hardin's life work. All the experiments he had been performing for the previous seven years had led up to this, and it would be taking place that weekend. I would be picked up with the other participants that Friday afternoon, where we would be taken to Hardin's property in the mountains. From there, the experiment would be revealed and everything would be explained. And that was it. I left, beyond thrilled and felt like I floated out of the building after the news. Friday arrived and a large Greyhound bus picked me up. There were what I counted out as 14 other student volunteers, making 15 of us in total. The drive up to Hardin's property in the mountains took almost two hours. It was filled with winding roads through forest and hill, and we passed through the gates of two sets of electrified fences. It was another half hour from the fences to reach Hardin's house. There was more than just a house, though. I didn't see it at first because it was painted the same mixed green color pattern as the leaves and the trees surrounding it. There were several structures built together in a large research compound in the shape of a hexagon. Hardin, the frazzled-haired professor with a patch-covered sport coat, stood in front of his old Ford Focus, excited for our arrival. Brian and Liz joined us in the three lettuce into the compound. It was the state-of-the-art facility with bunks, bathrooms, showers, and fully stocked kitchens to match the advanced R&D tech Hardin had been messing around with. We were shown to the large sleeping quarters where we were to get settled before the introduction meeting. Liz and Brian came to round us up and we were each given a full-body heat-protective suit with breathers and air tanks. We were then led to the main chamber of the compound which looked like a mad scientist's wet dream. There were grand, retracting doors in the ceiling that opened to allow what it first looked like, some kind of futuristic telescope to peer up and out. But it wasn't a telescope. Hardin joined us. 
He started off by giving a brief but detailed history of his former occupations and research. It was fascinating. Hardin started working for National Defense with the Glenel Martin Company in the early 1950s. After several mergers across decades, the company became known as the weapons production juggernaut, Lockheed Martin. Confidentiality Hardin headed the Skunk Words Division at LM, which was an advanced aircraft manufacturing facility in the California desert. It was rumored that he had been working on anti-gravity technology for travel, developing aircrafts without wings or classic propulsion systems. Hardin led a team of U.S. aerospace engineers in the revisiting of an unconventional type of force, referred to as electro-gravitics. It was an anti-gravity force created by an electric's field effect on a mass. The team spent years seeking out the source of gravity and its control. Objectives for the team were obvious. The military was only interested in using the technology for weapons, and the government was like-minded. Hardin was far more interested in creating permanent, fuelless heating units for homes and industrial establishments, as well as for deep space travel. His aim wasn't so much about making materials weightless, but about giving them a negative weight. This would act similarly to a reverse magnet and would create a repulsion force that would send them in directions contra gravitationally. In the late 50s, Hardin was simultaneously consulting with DARPA on a project codenamed Seesaw. It was focused on a charged particle beam weapon and brought the professor into contact with some of the government's acquired knowledge on Nikola Tesla. Seeing that funding was only flowing into defense and weapons stack, Hardin left the skunk works in DARPA but continued his own research on gravity, knowing the harnessing of its power could be world-changing. But it wasn't only gravity that interested him. It was also vibration, frequency, and energy. Three solvable secrets of the universe, according to Tesla. Hardin had spent his entire life studying the work of the inventor, in fact, Hardin had created an advanced form of ground penetrating radar pulse technology that used electromagnetic radiation waves to generate detailed profiles of subterranean structures. He attached the sensors onto low-flying drones that canvassed from above. Hardin's vision was hyper-focused on Colorado Springs, but it was Pikes Peak, Colorado eight years ago where the discovery was made. There's long been a rumor about trunkloads full of Tesla's technical and scientific papers and his research being hidden somewhere near his property or in the vast mountains beyond. Amongst the trunks were Tesla's secrets and knowledge on everything. Using his new radar pulse tag, Hardin and his brother found one of Tesla's trunks. And this particular trunk, it focused on the fluid electrical charges that ran under the Earth's surface. Notebooks filled with equations and explanations on how to harness the grid as a limitless, free power supply. There were designs and diagrams for large mechanical oscillators that could have powered entire countries. Four years ago, Hardin had built his own oscillator. It had worked as his property's only energy source since then. Everything in the compound ran off of it. The trunk also filled in large gaps that Hardin had theories of vibration and frequency. 
He built his own much larger oscillator with a design using two massive, solid copper pillars that rose at 20 feet off the ground. They were perfectly cylindrical in shape. The two prongs pointed to the sky, parallel to one another. Hardin told us to put our full head masks on and seal them to the suit. When everyone had, he turned the machine on. The pillars shook and then vibrated so quickly a frequency was created between the two. Electric bolts shocked between them and multiplied until there were hundreds of threads connecting the conductors. Five minutes at this rate could produce enough power for our county's grid for a month, Hardin said. And there weren't any storage needs because the oscillator was channeling it directly from the Earth's endless natural grid. But this was only a portion of why we were here. Hardin needed copious amounts of energy for the real experiment. Our attention was directed to the telescope-looking machine, and Hardin finally explained what it was. We were looking at the most powerful light ever created, on Earth or otherwise. Hardin had created a laser that produced a light beam, exceeding one trillion times that of the brightness of the sun. Not only that, but it moved faster than the technical speed of light, at over 500 million miles per second. He called the light system, the arc. Because of the endless energy source, the perfect design and construction of the oscillator and the light beam, Hardin could continue to push the limits of what was previously settled science. In last year's experiment, the group were present for contact with an alien being. They turned on the arc for 20 minutes, pointing it up into the coma supercluster. At that time, strange sounds were recorded. It appeared to be white noise at first, but then it turned into something alive, something aware, and it wasn't produced by vocal cords. The volunteers all gave different statements on what they had experienced. Some claimed the sounds contained certain notes, tones, peaks, and valleys. Others that these sounds came from inside their heads, inside of their chests. Some heard languages that they didn't know but somehow understood. Some said the sounds were positive. Others said they were negative and frightening. No one knew what the sounds actually were, but Hardin had his ideas. He believed the light from the Ark had reached somewhere with intelligent extraterrestrial life. The beings they heard traveled using light avatars along the beam being produced and had tried to communicate. And for those few minutes, it almost seemed like they were. But the connection was lost. There was an issue with the oscillator and the experiment had ended there. Now a year later, Hardin had fixed the problem and was ready to try again. With 18 people present, including the professor, Brian, and Liz, we were lined up in groups of three, six, and nine. I was in the last row at the edge. We waited a few minutes for overhead satellites to clear the skies, and then we had a half-hour window to aim into the coma supercluster. The oscillator, which had been humming idly by, was given more energy. We watched the electrical bolts dance and surge between the copper rods, channeling downwards and converting into energy to push the light threshold further and further. The overhead dome opened, revealing the clear night sky above. Hardin increased the power to the arc and then turned the beam on. It was immediate and overwhelming.
Even through my suit, I felt the heat being given off by the arc. The light beamed upwards, cutting through the darkness. I couldn't look directly at it. It was impossibly and painfully bright. Harden increased the power again, sending the room into a new level of illumination. The ground under our feet was vibrating. Everybody was looking up into the sky. My attention was on the ground and these small electric swirls dancing and curling up from under the floor panels. I didn't feel right. Everybody else stared straight up and they seemed fine. But I felt nauseous and dizzy. I felt a shock under my feet. The blue electrical currents from the ground were starting to shoot up the lengths of my legs. I stepped back, not wanting to look up. I knew that everyone was fixated on the beam, but I couldn't be here anymore. I needed to lay down. I backed up, slowly making my way to the door leading to the hallway. As I did, I decided to look back. Just inside the ceiling doors, sparks were spraying out from a pure white electrical cloud. From inside it, a chasm was tearing open the fabric of a reality. I could see through it and into it, and I could see our world all around it. It was bright white and filled with clouds and large hulking figures. From their backs sprouted grand sets of wings. They wore plates of gold around their necks and moved with unimaginable grace. Until they saw us. It became clear to me that what I was looking at weren't aliens. We hadn't somehow contacted some extraterrestrial race in a distant galaxy. Maybe the group from last year had, but this felt more like a biblical wizard of eyes. Those hulking figures weren't aliens. They were angels. And there I was with the curtain pulled aside, staring into heaven. No one was moving. Everyone was in a trance, staring up at awe. And then one of the angels looked down and saw the group staring up through the hole. And all of a sudden, the grace the angel carried had disappeared. The angel's massive hands grabbed the sides of the tear and pulled it further open. He pushed his gargantuan head through the opening, snarling down at us in our reality. Heat pulsed from the angel's aura as his upper body entered into our world. The heat was unbearable. I watched as the other 14 volunteers and the professor, Brian and Liz, melted down into a goopy pile of unrecognizable flash. Seeing all the witnesses dead, the angel reached down and grabbed a hold of the ark with one hand and the oscillator with his other. The angel's large muscles rippled and tensed as he tightened his grip, and just as he was breaking the machines and closing the tear, his eyes locked with mine. The angel saw me there, one more witness, cowering in the hallway entrance. And the next moment, he was gone and the room was dark. The power was completely out. The machine that Hardin had created was dead, crushed and melted down into an unrecognizable heap, just like him. On the walk back to civilization, I thought about Hardin, how he had wanted to change the world to save it. There were so many ways his technology could have helped us all, but instead he accidentally proved there was an afterlife, there was a heaven, and it was not the place of love and welcoming that we were hoping it was.
the kids in my neighborhood are following people and the people they follow disappear. Written by Beardify. Before I start this, I just want to make it clear. I'm not here to complain about young people. God knows my generation had our obsessions too. And bell bottoms, tie-dye, the war in Vietnam. It's just strange, that's all. It's even weirder than when the whole neighborhood got big hair and started jogging with their stereos back in the 80s. It started on the corner of Strawberry Court, just over yonder. I was having my 5 o'clock coffee on the back porch when I saw this kid in a gray sweatshirt just standing there. I figured he was just waiting for a ride or meeting with some friends. And even if he wasn't, it was none of my business. Or at least it wasn't until he started following Sammy, the girl with the golden retriever. It's been a lonely life ever since my wife Pam had died. And seeing Sammy walk by is usually the best part of my day. That afternoon, though, was different. I was afraid for her. That kid behind Sammy couldn't have been older than 13 or so. But there was something hungry and wrong about the way that he watched her. And the way that he followed her. Sammy always walks with one of those white doodads in her ear. She keeps her music turned up loud. There was no way she could have heard the kid's footsteps behind her. I rushed to my kitchen window. Between my back porch, the kitchen, and the front stoop. I've got a pretty good view of the neighborhood. But I'd never seen anything like the scene that was waiting for me in the window above my sink. The way the five kids had spaced themselves out reminded me of a pack of hunting wolves. But they didn't move, not at first. And then two of them fell in behind Sammy, and one kept pace with her from the other side of the street. The kid in front of Sammy was kicking along nonchalantly on his skateboard, but I knew that he was a part of it too. I didn't know what they were planning for her, but I doubted it was anything good. Now my knees aren't what they used to be, and it took me forever to get my shoes on and get out the front door, and when I did, Sammy was nowhere in sight. The kids had probably spooked her and she had gone home early, or so I hoped. I gripped my cane tight and walked down the street to knock on her door. Oh, how I wish I was 50 years younger. If I were, I wouldn't have been looking over my shoulder for signs of those kids. I wouldn't be so skittish about every little noise behind the hedges and fences along the way. And I wouldn't have had to worry about a hip-shattering fall or running out of breath. Instead, I'd buy Sammy a bouquet of roses, get down on one knee, and... Uh, Mr. Hall... Sammy opened her front door just to crack. She looked nervous. How's it going? Them kids, I panted. They were. What kids? The most beautiful woman on the block had asked me. There was worry in her soft blue eyes. Mr. Hall, are you feeling alright? Oh, please, call me rich, I sighed. And before you ask, I did indeed take my meds this morning. I'm sorry, I didn't mean. Sammy began. I waved a hand. Don't worry, I just... I seen something strange. There was a group of teenagers behind you, and I wanted to make sure that you were alright. Oh, Sammy fidgeted, blocking my view of the inside of the house with her body. Maybe it was just a mess, but it felt like it was more than that. 
Something was wrong. That's very kind of you, but I'm fine. Everything's fine. I really need to get back to work now, though, so... Well, just remember, I'm right up the block. You call if you need anything. Okay, bye. She practically slammed the door in my face. My walk back home was troubled. Maybe I had stuck my nose in where it didn't belong. Maybe I was going senile or even worse, getting obsessed with Sammy, a woman less than half my age. The hair stood up on my arms and the back of my neck. It's strange how a person just knows when they're being watched. I gripped my cane tight. My eyes scanned the yards nearby. They were standing so still that I didn't notice them at first. Two of the kids who had been following Sammy, the sunset was at their backs. The distorting light made it impossible to see their faces, and it made their shadows look stretched and wrong. Hey, I shouted. They didn't budge. Hey, I shouted again. Nothing. I wasn't going to try to cross two yards to chase them down, and they knew it. I shook my head and kept walking, but I couldn't help but look over my shoulder as I went. I never went to Nam myself, but some of my friends who came back would tell me about this hair-raising feeling they would get when they knew that they were being watched, stalked, hunted. Fifty years later, in my own quiet suburban neighborhood, I thought I knew what they meant. I locked the door and uh, scanned the street, but the kids were gone. In fact, it looked just like an ordinary evening. And couples pushed strollers down the sidewalk. Toddlers swerved on their tricycles. It was like I had imagined the whole thing. I spent what was left of the afternoon checking my pill bottles for side effects like hallucinations or paranoia. By the time the sun finally set, I knew that I wasn't seeing things, but it was impossible to fall asleep. The branches on the big cherry tree outside looked too much like dark figures standing just outside my bedroom window. I retreated to my living room armchair with a cold beer and an old war movie, hoping the booze and simple black and white action would lull me to sleep. I woke with a start. It was just after 3 a.m. My mouth was dry and died to piss, but that wasn't what had woken me. Someone was ringing my doorbell. I grabbed the old 38 revolver from my bedside drawer. Its cool steel helped to steady my shaking hands, but I didn't want to use it, especially not on some kids. I put it away and I called the cops. When they arrived, there was nobody around but the cicadas. I stood in my bathrobe on the front stoop, explaining what had happened, and the cops promised that they would look into it, but they looked even more tired than I was. The younger of the two lingered on the porch, like he wanted to say something more, but his silver-haired colleague called him back to the cruiser with a hard glare. It's a pretty common prank after all, the younger cop sighed. Kids are going back to school, meeting up with their friends, running wild. It doesn't have to mean anything serious. Not necessarily. Well, yeah, have a good night, sir. He walked off, fingers drumming nervously on his belt. It doesn't have to mean anything serious. Not necessarily. What the heck was that about? The next afternoon, I didn't see Sammy walking her dog. 
I took a walk past your house, but her car was gone and the lights were out. Rex Martin, Sammy's neighbor, saw me peering in the darkened windows and he waved. If you're looking for Sam, I think she's gone on vacation. And she didn't say nothing about it beforehand. If she did, I wouldn't remember. I've been so busy running the girls back and forth to daycare that I can't tell my left from right. Have a good one. He waved again, and he disappeared into the family minivan. If anybody could use a vacation, it was Rex. As I meandered through the neighborhood, lost in thought, a red rubber ball bounced over a nearby fence and rolled to a stop in front of me. It was just a little thing, but it chilled my blood. No toddler came running up to ask for her back, and when I peeked over the fence, the yard was empty. Someone had thrown it on purpose. Someone had thrown it to remind me that I was being watched. That night, I dreamed of Santa Claus. I could hear his heavy footsteps above me, smell the soot as he came down the chimney with a bag full of all the toys that I never had grown up in a West Virginia coal town. It was odd. I could see his fur-lined red outfit and bright white beard. But where his face should have been, there was only darkness. He gave me a red rubber ball, or at least that's what I thought it was at first. I turned the round thing over. It was sticky, felt like wet hair, and smelled like spoiled meat. It wasn't a red rubber ball. It was Sammy's severed head. I sat up in bed with a gasp. Just a dream. So why did I still hear someone walking on my roof? They were stomping just above my head. By the time that I got my old bones moving and made it outside with my flashlight and my pistol, they were gone. Only the stars looked down from above my roof, twinkling like they were laughing at me. Rich? Someone whispered. I spun around, the 38 shaking in my hand. It was Austin Wang, my neighbor. He was barefoot and in his matching blue pajamas, his hands up in the air. My god, I'd nearly shot him. I hadn't cried since I had broken my arm when I was nine years old. But the mix of anger and helplessness that I felt made me want to start bawling right then and there. There, there was someone. I gestured helplessly at the roof with the pistol, then Austin flinched. I didn't see anybody up there, Mr. Hall. I knew the tone in Austin's voice. It was the tone that cops used to talk someone down from jumping off a rooftop. The tones that shrinks used with patients having a schizophrenic break. Why don't you just put the pistol down and try to get some sleep? If you want, I can drive you into town tomorrow, and you can talk to someone. With a wave of my hand, I went back inside and sat on the bed. They all thought I was crazy. Or at least I thought so until I checked my mailbox the next morning, where I found an anonymous note on a folded post-it note. If you let them know that you know, it only gets worse. The next evening, I set out for a walk around the neighborhood with a new spring in my step. I wore my standard old man uniform, a sun visor, faded polo shirt, khaki shorts, high white socks, and walking shoes. I waved to neighbors and whistled as I walked, 
and brought a crossword puzzle to fill in when I stopped to rest at the bench by the pool. Nothing to see here. With a black pen, I began to fill in squares in the crossword. One square for each dark, silent house that I saw. I didn't count rentals, for sale homes, or anyone that I knew was on a real vacation. I only counted the homes where there should have been life, but wasn't. Homes with uncut grass, lightless windows, mail and newspapers piled up like firewood. I counted 13 of them. What the heck was going on? Before all this started, I never paid much attention to young people. I didn't care if they played their music too loud or walked across my lawn. They would do their thing, I figured, and I would do mine. But ever since a group of kids started stalking people, me included, I began to notice something very wrong with the youth in my town. At first, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. But as I drove past a group of them standing in a circle on a street corner, I realized what was so off about them. It was the quiet. There was no music blaring from a portable speaker, no laughter or yelling or goofing off, just endless, silent staring. What were they waiting for? I drove into town to do my shopping with a stupid grin on my face and cheerful music on the radio, just in case they were watching me. It stuck in my craw, having to pretend that everything was fine after everything that I had seen, but I knew the alternative. They had already tried my doors and walked to my roof. The next step, probably popping the latch on a window or slipping under the garage door. For all I knew, they'd come slithering up the sewer pipes. It was getting harder and harder to keep up that fake smile. Four kids were lined up in front of the woods across from the grocery store. In unison, they swiveled their hooded heads to watch each car roll by. If I looked in the rearview mirror, would I see that their necks twisted all the way around? I wasn't sure that I wanted to know. Once I had parked and gone inside the grocery store, I risked a glance out at the four preteens across the street. The chilly fall wind blew dead leaves against their sneakers, but they were as still as statues. I shuddered. Everything in the beeping checkout lines was going about their business as though none of this was happening. Well, almost everyone was. I saw the young cop who had come by my house pushing a cart full of dry beans and rice, like he was prepping for the apocalypse. Maybe he was. The young cop pretended not to notice me when I waved, but I wasn't taking no for an answer. He took off and I went after him, pushing myself alone with my cane like a busted old locomotive. I guess he realized that an old guy chasing him through the supermarket was a lot more suspicious than stopping and having a quiet chat. He parked his overflowing cart by the restroom and he nodded toward it. Inside, the young cop pushed open the stall doors, checking to see if we were alone. What the heck do you think you're doing? He hissed. Jim Kelly read his name tag. I could ask you the same thing. I crossed my arms and stood between the cop and the door. A shopping cart full of dry goods. Four teens standing by the road for hours on a Tuesday morning, and the cops do nothing. People are walking around scared of their own shadows, 
Yeah, they should be. Officer Callie whispered. He looked over his shoulder at the bathroom door. You should be too. We don't know what's going on any more than you civilians. Orders from the topper to only investigate the cases that can't be covered up and to deny the rest. Cases? My jaw dropped open. My God, Jim, how many are there? Officer Jim Kelly shrugged. I don't have access to that information. Look, I'm sure the higher-ups are handling whatever this is in the best way that they can. The best thing you can do for yourself and for the people you care about is to keep your head down and not get involved. Can you do that for me, Mr. Hall? The bathroom door swung open. A deli shop employee running for the urinal. The young cop and I pretended to wash her hands and went our separate ways. When I pulled out of the parking lot, the four kids across the street were gone. Or so I thought. As I turned the corner, I saw seven of them walking out of the trees. Their sneakers were filthy and the bottom of their jeans were caked with mud. They were walking with jerky steps toward an abandoned station wagon. Its driver's side door was hanging open and the emergency flashers were blinking, like someone had just been dragged out of it. That settled it. Officer Jim Kelly and his superiors were full of it. Like the heck I was going to sit back and wait for them to come for me. Sammy and the families who had lived in those empty houses, they hadn't noticed anything was wrong. They had gone about their business as usual, and what had it got them? All of them were gone, and I didn't want to imagine how. Who else could I turn to? Who else might know what was happening in my town? I just drove for a while. I didn't have any particular place to go. I just needed to think and stay away from my house, and to try to figure out how bad this was. In every neighborhood that I passed through, I saw at least one group of them, a pack of young people standing silently, waiting, for what I didn't know. The high school parking lot was half empty, and no one played basketball on the courts after school. When I got closer to my own suburb, however, I reckoned that I found an answer to my question. A pale teenager on an electric scooter, with hair that looked like a mop and music blaring from the phone hanging off of his neck. I wouldn't have noticed him at all if it wasn't for what was waiting for him up ahead. He couldn't see it from where he was, but up ahead the sidewalk narrowed and it passed through the fence of a city park. That was where they were waiting. Five of those silent, statue-still kids. Hey, I shouted to the kid. Neither he couldn't hear me or he was ignoring the weird old guy yelling something at him out of a passing car. He kept going until he noticed them. In the glow of the streetlight, I saw it all. The way the silent kids blocked his path. The way two more of them crept out of the woods. Like they had been planning this. The look of panic on the pale teenager's face when he realized that there was no escape. I couldn't just watch this happen. Hey, I yelled again. I pulled over near the park fence and pulled my 38 revolver from the glove box. I limped toward the pack of kids. 
They were a wide range of ages, anything from 10 to 17. Some of them had sneakers worth more than my monthly social security check, while others wore oversized Walmart clothes. And whatever was happening with these kids didn't discriminate by race or gender. The only thing they all had in common was the numb, slack-jawed look on their faces. It was like their bodies were here, but their minds were off someplace else, screaming. When I got close, they turned on me. I won't lie, when I saw them all move in unison like that, even their footsteps, I had second thoughts. I wondered if it might not be better to get back in my car, put on another black and white war movie, sip a cold beer and forget that I had seen the pale teenager with the mop haircut. It's hard to explain it, but there's some kind of human connection that comes when you lock eyes with somebody. I wanted to back away, but that teenager on the scooter was looking right at me, and his eyes said help. What are you kids doing? I tried to sound intimidating, but the words came out as a scared little squeak. If they rushed me, I was done for, and they knew it. A teenager with a square jaw, a muscular build, and a single diamond earring stepped forward from the group. I would have sworn that I had seen him before, but I couldn't remember where. And besides, that slackened expression made all their faces seem similar. Suddenly the group surrounded the teen on the scooter, grabbing him. Bang. I had never fired my 38 outside of a gun range before. The noise was ear-splitting. It echoed off of the trees in nearby houses like a thunderclap. It was a warning shot straight up into the sky. I tried to keep my hands from shaking as I pointed it at the kid with the diamond earring. Your move, chief. Without a word, the pack slunk away. The kid with the diamond earring walked backwards into the twilight behind them. Even when I couldn't see his weird, mannequin-like face any longer, I knew that he was still staring at me from out there in the dark. Uh, the kid on the scooter with the mop haircut muttered, Thanks. When he turned to go, I grabbed his collar. Not so fast. When you saw those kids, you recognized them. You know who they are. And you might even have some idea about what they're up to. And before you go zooming off, you're going to tell me all about it. What's your name? I asked the teenager in my passenger seat. It took him a minute to respond, but then again... He had just been almost jumped by a crowd of silent kids and been rescued by an old man with a revolver. His shock made perfect sense to me. My heart was pounding and my arthritic hands ached from gripping the gun. Caden, he finally sighed. Caden Cooper, I appreciate your help back there, Mr. Paul, but please call me Ridge. I shook his hand. We had driven away from the park and the weird kids lurking in its shadows. In the headlights of the oncoming cars, I got a better view of Caden Cooper. What I saw led me to believe that this hadn't been his first run-in with the silent kids, as I had started calling them. He had a faded bruise on the side of his face, the kind you get from being punched in the mouth. 
Other than that, though, he was a handsome kid. Pam and I were never able to have kids or grandkids, but if we had, I reckon they might look a little like Caden, a stupid haircut and all. I'm gonna drop you off at home, Caden, I told the kid, but I did you a pretty solid favor back there, and I think it's fair to ask one in return. I just want to know what's going on around here. You won't be able to stop it. The teachers couldn't, the police can't either. Caden kept peering out of the windows looking, no doubt for more groups like the one that had tried to jump in. That kid with the earring, I thought that I recognized him. Who is he? Brett Halloran, the mayor's son. All of this started with him. Look, I pulled to a stop with an empty church parking lot. Caden took out his phone. He showed me a grainy video of a high school football field at night. The wobbly camera zoomed in on a group of kids, led by Brett, surrounding a football player. The football player looked like he was made of solid muscle, but the grass stains on his knees and sweat on his forehead told me that he was exhausted from practice, and there were a lot of silent kids. When they grabbed him, he closed his eyes like he knew what was coming. Brett held a screen up to his face and the others. They peeled his eyelids open. A glowing red light lit up from the screen. I'm sure that football player would have screamed if the silent kids hadn't been holding his jaw shut. The longer he was forced to watch whatever was on that screen, the less that he struggled. Although I could see what looked like tears streaming down his cheeks. When the red glow from Brett's phone blinked off, the football player rose jerkily and stood among the rest of them. There is a sudden scuffling sound, a hastily whispered, Ah, crap! And every slack-jawed mannequin-like teenager started sprinting at the person holding the camera. The rest of the recording was just shaky footage of a person running through the trees and then nothing. My best friend Leandra uploaded that video. She hasn't been at school since. What do you think? Drive! Caden shouted. A kid in a white baseball cap stood at the edge of the parking lot. He had raised his phone in the air and its screen lit up with a freakish red light. In the foggy field behind him, I saw the red glow of dozens more. We had been found. I jammed the car into gear, swerving around kids as they mobbed us. One slammed a rock into the passenger side window, cracking the glass but not breaking it. I turned onto the empty street and the dark shapes of these silent kids disappeared into the fog. We had almost made it to the highway when I had heard it. The sound from the rear right side of the car. Caden, I asked, do you know how to change a tire? There was nothing but fog and pine trees along the state road. Headlights zoomed by occasionally, but no one stopped and I couldn't blame them. There weren't any of the silent kids around, unless they were hiding in the trees. I stood watch and whispered instructions to Caden while he did the real work. I guess we're even. Caden grunted when he had finished tightening the last lug knot, and I had to agree. I would have never been able to put on the donut tire myself. He had saved my butt, but we only had about 50 miles in the spare. Wherever we went, we had to make a count. 
and the silent kids knew where both of us lived. Isn't there anyone you can call? Caden asked. The sad truth was, there wasn't. My family and close friends had moved on or had died a long time ago. All I really had left was... Neighbors. I called Austin Wang, my next door neighbor, first. Someone picked up, but there was only dead air on the other side. Hello, Austin. More silence and then a click. I felt a pang of worry when I saw Sammy's name in my contacts. It couldn't hurt to try. She picked up on the seventh ring. Hello, she whispered. Sam, I gasped. It's Rich. Where are you? Are you alright? They were already in the house, she murmured. When you came, I didn't want to get you hurt. I fought them off and got away, but... Where are you now? My car is on its last leg. My Uncle Hugh's hunting cabin. She gave me an address and some directions. I got it. Caden showed me the location that he had already pulled up on his phone. It's off a dirt forest road in the middle of nowhere, so be careful not to get lost. Sammy's warning echoed in my ears as I pulled back onto the state route and drove Caden and myself towards safety, or so I hoped. It's no fun getting old. The donut tire gave out about halfway down the dirt driveway of the cabin where Sammy was hiding out, which meant that we had to walk the rest of the way. It was only about a mile, but what a mile. Slippery gravel and eroded dirt. No place to sit down and rest. It hurts my pride to admit it, but by the end of it, Caden was practically carrying me. There were no lights except for our flashlights and the stars. I'd always hated walking through the woods at night. The way the light turns the branches into barreled bones. My own grandfather dragged me along to hunt down a rabid dog that was loose behind his farm when I wasn't much older than Caden. And I'll never forget the mad look in that slobbering animal's eyes when I pulled the trigger. It was half hate, half horror. The face of a living thing taken over by something outside of its control. I hadn't seen anything like it again until I saw the silent kids. I would have preferred to face ten rabid dogs rather than see a group of them come walking out of the woods. I could see the cabin up ahead, a black square in the darkness. It had seen better days. The roof was covered with dead branches and pine needles, and there was no light inside of the dirty windows. Oh, Rich, I don't know about this, Caden whispered. Do you still have the gun? I did, but as tired as I was, I doubted that I could even aim it straight. Something rustled in the bushes. It was barking. Monster, Sammy's golden retriever came running out to greet us. Two headlamps struggled through the trees behind us. Sammy and a wiry middle-aged guy in full camo. They were dragging a blue tarp between them. A deer, and as soon as he saw us, the middle-aged guy dropped the tarp and racked his shotgun. The heck are they? That's rich, Uncle Hugh, Sammy explained. My neighbor and... Uh, Caden. The kid waved nervously. You told him about this place, Jesus, Sam. I'm not running a freaking camp out here. Sammy's Uncle Hugh had the round, wild eyes of someone who had spent a long time far away from other people. 
It was like I had seen in some of my buddies who had gone to Nam, and I didn't like it at all. Rich tried to save me from them. Sammy explained patiently, and Kate in here looks pretty strong. We need someone like that if we're going to be staying up here for a long time. I noticed she was still wearing her suburban power walking outfit, with one of those fuzzy green army surplus jackets zipped over the top of it. She looked drained, not only from the nightmare happening in her town, but also from handling her Uncle Hugh. Hugh scratched his cheeks inside. They were gaunt and stubbly. I wondered what he had been living on out here in the woods. Well, you're here now, Hugh grunted. Might as well make yourself useful. We gotta get this meat smoked before it spoils. A few hours later, we were all packed into Hugh's tiny cabin. Its single room was lit by a bare generator powered light bulb, and the heat came from a potbelly stove. The same one that warmed the canned beans that Hugh offered us for dinner. Generations of cans were stacked high on every wall. I think I even spotted some cobwebby crystal Pepsi up by the ceiling. There was barely enough room for the four of us, a five-cotting monster, to sleep in front of the stove. I had forgotten how chilly it could get in the woods at night, even at the end of summer. I'm gonna go check the perimeter again, Hugh grunted. He had been twitching nervously on his cot for the past hour, unable to sleep. Maybe he set some traps. Traps? Caden looked at me with alarm. Sammy covered up a smile and rolled her eyes. The door slammed, leaving the three of us alone in the cabin. He was a lot to handle, but he means well. He used to be a university professor. Ecology. When he saw the direction the world was going... He taught himself all this stuff and moved out to a cabin to wait for the apocalypse. She laughed bitterly. I don't think he knows what to do with himself now that it might actually be here. Those kids, they followed you home, didn't they? I asked. Sam took a long, rattling breath. Whatever had happened, it traumatized her. And I didn't want to make her go through it again. Look, if you don't want to talk about it... No... Sam shut her eyes and shook her head. You need to know what we're up against. For me, it had been a normal afternoon. I had gotten back home with Monster and I was just turning the key in the front door lock when I saw their shadows on the porch. They were right behind me, and before I could say anything, they had pushed me inside. They had this dead, emotionless look on their face, like puppets on a string, you know. I nodded. I knew. Sam went on. By the time that you came to the door, they had locked a monster in the downstairs bathroom, and three of them had grabbed knives from the kitchen, like they were going to make a salad or something. All at once, they held fingers up to their lips. That's why I didn't say anything to you. Sam had sniffed. They put zip ties on my wrists and marched me into the woods. Never said anything. Not a word, but I think that somehow they were communicating. Or something was communicating with them. It was getting dark by then. They took out their phones to light the way. The screens had this weird red glow. And Caden and I exchanged a glance. It made my head hurt. Like something was trying to worm its way inside. Finally, we came to a trail and I actually recognized it. It led to a place where we used to party back in high school. Up on the hill beneath the power lines. 
You know where I mean, Kaden. I don't get invited to a lot of parties. Kaden shook his head. Well, anyway, it used to be a cliffy little hill overlooking the town and the river. By now, it's, it's different. Some of the cliffs have sort of collapsed. And there's this cave. Sammy paused. This part was tough for her. Who knows how far down it goes. The kids brought me to the edge of it and I felt hot. What air blowing up from it. It was like it was breathing. It smelled like rotten meat and when I looked around, I saw sneakers, shirts, dirty jeans in a pile. And everything was lit by that weird red light. And I realized what was going to happen. Whatever was down there, they were going to feed me to it. So, how did you get away? Kaden asked. The kid's voice was a pure suspicion. They threw me down in the rocks, to strip me I guess. Before they threw me down into the pit but when I hit the ground, the zip tie had snapped and I ran. Kaden and I looked at each other. Sammy was cute and honest and kind and I liked her. But it was hard to believe that she had just given the slip to a pack of silent kids in the woods at night. Sam, I began, are you sure they didn't just let you get away? What? Sammy had our skeptical faces. But why? Why would they do that? So that you would lead them to others who knew what was going on. Caden shouted. You don't really believe that, do you, Rich? Sammy asked. Caden was watching me too, waiting for a response. But I didn't have one. My joints felt like they were on fire after the short walk to the cabin, and I was too tired to think straight. I didn't have it in me to be the wise old man. Not tonight. We heard a single, lonely gunshot from somewhere in the woods. Monster got to his feet and started barking. And then everything broke loose. It's hard to count running footsteps in the dark. How many of them were there? Ten, a hundred, I couldn't say. But just before Kaden slammed the cabin storm shutters in their faces, I got a look at the silent kids. Whatever was controlling them, it was putting them through a nightmare. Their skin was cut by thorns and their clothes were splattered with mud, and they must have come over 30 miles to Hugh's cabin on foot. I wondered if they felt the pain. I wondered if they were still conscious somewhere in there screaming in the dark on the other side of those dead, doll-like faces. I didn't have to wonder, however, what had happened to Hugh. In the eerie, red glow of these silent kids' phones, I could see that some of their fists and feet were bloody, like they had just beaten someone to death. Caden slammed the shutters on the silent kids a few seconds before they shattered the glass. Oh no, oh no, oh no! Sammy was hunched over on the floor, clutching her skull. Outside, the silent kids were pounding on the walls of the cabin. I couldn't tell if they were trying to tear the building apart with their bare hands, or just to drive us insane from the noise. The walls and the roof were sturdy. Hugh had made sure of that. It was these storm shutters that I was worried about. They seemed to come a little looser with every bash from outside. Mount Caden tried to match guns to ammo. I considered the possibilities. I had never seen any of the silent kids drive or do anything else more complicated than stalking people on foot. 
So how far would they go to get us out of here? All they would have to do was light a fire. And behind me, Caden released the safety of the rifle. I swatted the barrel down toward the floor. Don't shoot any of them, I pleaded. Not unless there's no other way. Here, Sammy whispered. I thought that she had just been having a mental breakdown on the floor, but she had been looking for something. A cellar door. Of course. If anyone would have a trap door in his cabin, it was Hugh. My uncle showed me this tunnel when I was a little girl. I used to play down there until I grew up and got grossed out by the bugs and dirt. Caden was already scrambling forward, rifle and flashlight in hand. Monster barked and followed after. Another nasty blow splintered at the storm shutters. And as I stood to follow Caden, my leg gave out. A pulled muscle, a sprained ankle, I had no idea. But it looked like I was going nowhere. The light bulb swung wildly from the battering hands and the feet hitting the cabin walls. Get a move on, I told Sam. Looks like this is as far as I go. I lay back and clutched my thigh. No way. I couldn't believe it. Sammy had grabbed me by the shoulders, and she dragged me to the tunnel. You're getting out of here even if you have to drag yourself, and I have to push you from behind. Now get crawling. No one had spoken to me like that since my wife Pam had died, but it got me moving. The tunnel was damp and filthy. It was barely wide enough for a person Sammy or Caden's size, and I wasn't as skinny as I used to be. Every foot was agony, but we were getting somewhere. I only hoped that wherever we got, it would be far enough away. Oh crap. Caden gasped up ahead. It wasn't exactly a phrase you wanted to hear when crammed into a dark, muddy tunnel. There was a funny smell in the air like cow pies mixed with gasoline. Anfo. He crawled out into a small dirt room. In the glow of his flashlight, I could see plastic sacks filled with crumbly white stuff, like styrofoam. A gas mask, a hazmat suit, and other survival gear hung from the wall. What is all this stuff? Sammy asked as she helped me squeeze out of the tunnel. It's an explosive, Caden explained. One of the easiest ones to make at home. It doesn't detonate on its own, but there's probably a blasting charge around here somewhere. We stared. What? Caden rolled his eyes. I wrote my history term paper on the Oklahoma City bomber. and This is the stuff that he used. Hugh really was preparing for the end of the world. Sammy said in awe. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? The cave, Caden asked. Sammy nodded. Are you two out of your minds? I hissed. We gotta get as far away from this town as possible, and let the authorities handle this. Like how they've been handling it so far. And Caden snapped back. I groaned and shut my eyes. We weren't explosive experts. We weren't soldiers or government agents. We didn't stand a chance against whatever was out there. We don't have much time before the silent kids figure out the trapdoor, and we haven't gone nearly far enough, I sighed. Check to see what's outside before you go all Rambo on me. What's a Rambo? Caden whispered as he peered out of the door of our makeshift space. We were in some kind of shed that had been disguised to blend into the woods. On the dirt track between the cabin and ourselves, I could see Hugh's pickup truck and the sedan that Sammy had driven up here. 
I heard her take out her keys and shush Monster, who had come panting up the tunnel behind us. Looks like the coast is clear. Hang on a sec. Sammy took my weight onto her shoulder. We moved toward the sedan as quietly as we could under the circumstances. Without our flashlights, all we could distinguish up ahead were twisted and black shapes. The woods were oddly quiet. No rustling of small animals or the hum of insects. There was no movement from the cabin either. We were about halfway up the dirt track to where the cars were parked when a red square lit up in the trees about 50 feet away. One of the silent kids' phones. All throughout the forest, other screens lit up in response. They had spread out methodically to track us. In the eerie red light, the silent kid's eyes seemed to glow as well. For the first time, I realized that there was a sort of hum coming from their phones. Sammy clutched her head in pain. Go, go, go. Caden hissed behind us. We needed speed and more than silence. Sammy unlocked her sedan with a remote key and practically flung me into the back and slipped into the driver's seat. Caden came up behind with the rifle and several stacks of the stuff from Hugh's shed. In the headlights, we could see them charge in the car. Monster jumped into the back seat beside Hugh's gear, barking his head off. As Sammy started the car and swerved through the crowd of silent kids, Caden reached for Hugh's rifle. I threw it out the window. What the heck? Caden roared. This isn't some video game, I yelled back. Those are real kids out there and they might be alright if we could just get them free of whatever this is. Oh yeah? Caden snarled. And what if we can't? What if this is spread to every town in the country by now? Or the world? There were tears in Caden's eyes. My own little brother is one of them. Silence. We bumped down the dirt road, chased by the running shadows in Sammy's taillights. Caden was still furious about the rifle, but I approved my own theory by throwing it away. None of the silent kids had tried to use it or even acknowledged it. Whatever was controlling them could stalk and set traps on a massive scale, but it didn't really understand how our world worked. I was too tired and in too much pain to pay much attention to my surroundings. I didn't even realize that I was back in my own neighborhood until Sammy had parked at the end of a subdivision that I recognized. It was a cul-de-sac with only four houses butting up against the woods. And although I had walked past the winding path at its end on many an afternoon, I never had known where it led. Until now. The hill beneath the power lines. The cave. Caden and Sammy were actually going to go through with their crazy plan. Their boneheaded idea wasn't the only thing making me nervous, however. Since we had gotten back into town, we hadn't seen a single one of the silent kids. For almost a week now, I had seen them on street corners and walking in packs at all hours of the day or night. Where are they all gone? In fact, we hadn't seen anyone. It was barely 6am, but even so, we should have encountered a passing car, a jogger, but the neighborhood was as quiet as the forest had been. I rolled my window down and took a deep breath. The air was damp and chilly. The light was only just beginning to creep into the sky. Something had changed since we had gone up to the cabin and I could feel it. A slamming car door snapped me out of my reverie. Caden was standing beside the trunk, reading the instructions on the blasting cap. 
Stay here, boy. Sammy stuck her head in the window and petted Monster, who was whining. I couldn't tell if she was talking to me or the dog, but all it took was one look at my leg to know for sure that I wouldn't be going down any more forest trails. I moved it and winced. I'm begging you, I grunted. Do not do this. You're going to get yourselves killed. Don't worry, Sammy tried to smile. We'll be fine. I could see the fear in her eyes. She wasn't any more confident in this harebrained scheme than I was. She loaded the plastic bags of explosive into a sporty turquoise backpack that she kept in her trunk. Go on ahead, Kaden muttered to her. He was still trying to understand the fine print on the blasting cap. I'll catch up. Once Sammy was out of earshot, Kaden leaned in the window and spoke to me. Mr. Haller, uh, Rich, I've been thinking about something Sam said earlier. About how she saw the red light on the phones while she was being led through the woods. You don't think? No. She doesn't act anything like them, I think. Caden took a deep breath. I think it only affects kids somehow. Young people. Mrs. Black in music class told us one time that there are frequencies that only people under 24 can hear. And maybe it's like that. Let me get this straight. You're saying that whatever is controlling the silent kids, it only affects folks under 20 or so, because you all are the only ones who can perceive it. I summed up, and Caden nodded. That's why I need you to do me another favor, Rich. Caden looked at the gravy, misty world around us with a thousand-yard stare that I had only ever seen in my black-and-white war movies. If I come back down that trail and I'm not me... Caden pointed a finger gun at the side of his head and made a fiery motion. I don't want to kill anybody, Rich. I don't want to have to watch from inside my own body while my hands tear somebody apart like they did to Hugh. God, please, Rich, don't let me become one of them. Caden leaned on the car, bawling his eyes out. I opened the door, leaned on my cane, and forced myself to my feet despite the pain. And I hugged the kid tight. I won't let you kill anyone, I promised. In my head, however, I was silently praying that I wouldn't have to make that choice. We had only known each other for a single night, but Caden already felt like the grandchild that I had never had. I couldn't see myself pointing my thirty-eight at his face and pulling the trigger. When the tears dried up, Caden straightened his back, squeezed my shoulder, and set off into the gray woods in pursuit of Sammy. It was only after he had left and the fog began to clear that I noticed the hooded body laying face down in a nearby yard. In their gray sweatshirt and green cargo pants, they had blended in perfectly with the misty morning grass. A phone lay beside its outstretched hand, and as I approached, it lit up with an eerie red glow. I hobbled over to the hooded teenager laying face down in the dewy grass. I moved as quietly as I could under the circumstances, because if the kid had sprang to his feet and charged me, I was in no condition to run. As I got closer to the eerie red glow of the phone beside him, I understood what Sammy had meant. The air near the kid's phone seemed to hum with some kind of electricity, and I felt a kind of pressure in the back of my mind, like something was trying to push its way through. Puke rose in my throat and my knees felt weak. I put all my weight on my good leg, lifted my cane high above my shoulder, and holding one to the phone as far away as I could whack it. 
That sickening feeling vanished immediately, and nervously I bent down beside the teenager, a brown-haired boy with glasses, probably around 14. His breathing was regular. He seemed to be asleep, but he was definitely one of the silent kids. I could tell by the scrapes and bruises on his hands and arms, the mud on his cargo pants. His skin was sallow and stretched from lack of sleep and nourishment, but that awful slack-jawed look had gone out of his face. Around the corner of the house, I saw a barefoot in a girl's black shoe. It was another silent kid, a girl of about 13, wearing a skirt and a jean jacket. She leaned against the fence like a puppet with its strings cut, like she had fallen asleep trying to climb it. One of her hands was covered in blood, but I doubted that it was hers. It was all very strange, but now that I knew these two and maybe more were near, I'd have to keep my guard up. Walking back to the car, I touched the cold steel of the revolver in my pocket and wished that I'd had the strength to follow Sammy and Kaden. A horrible wind came roaring from the woods. Instinct made me duck, but my leg gave out and I wound up prone on the pavement beside Sammy's sedan. With no place else to hide, I crawled into the oily darkness beneath it. The noise was so loud that I couldn't even hear a monster's barks. Only after it passed over the car did I realized what it was. A jet black helicopter flying low, and two more followed it. Finally, the noise passed. I was just about to drag myself out from underneath the car when I heard monsters stand up and start scratching at the glass of the passenger side window, the one that faced the trail. Something was coming out of the forest. I kept still with my chest on the asphalt, listening to my heartbeat and gritting my teeth at the pain in my leg. The two figures in night camouflage Kevlar that came down the path looked military but not from any outfit that I had ever heard of. The pattern of their gear, the insignia, it was all wrong. To my horror, they approached the car. Soon, all I could see were their brutal-looking black boots. Look at this, one grunted. The owner probably went for a walk back when all this started and never came back. They probably got him before he knew what hit him. Poor thing. A rifle butt shattered at Sammy's car window. Broken glass rained down and the door opened, and Monster hopped out, tail wagging. I silently prayed that it wouldn't hurt him, and that he wouldn't do anything to alert these two weird paramilitary thugs to my presence. But I shouldn't have worried. Monster was way too curious about the whole new world of smells on their gear to even care about me. Who's a good boy? A husky, female voice chuckled a petty monster. Makes me glad that the higher-ups only ordered to neutralize civilians on this operation. I hate when we gotta kill every living thing, just to keep some awful menace from spreading. Yeah, the male agreed. That scorched earth stuff always leaves me feeling sick to my stomach. I just tell myself that if the civvies knew what we know, they'd probably consider death a blessing. And that's considering that the higher-ups make us forget that really messed up stuff. He paused. But this was a bad one. They're sure that they got it all. Christ, Barker. I could hear the woman rolling her eyes. How many times do I gotta explain it to you? Those things are four-dimensional beings. They exist both beneath the surface of our world and elsewhere. 
Fragging one here ain't any different from pulling up half a weed or cutting the tail off a lizard. It's gonna grow back someplace else and start doing the same thing, taking over mine so that it can feed. What are they gonna tell the civilians? About the disappearances, you mean, nothing. In this country, if it doesn't get reported on, it might as well have never happened. And as for our operation, the higher-ups have gotten all the civvies holed up in their houses. They told them there was a bad chemical spill and it wasn't safe to go outside. A pretty lame excuse if you ask me, but it did the job. Later, they'll probably put some amnestics in the water supply. And as for the kids, well, that's a bright spot in all this mess. They won't remember anything. They'll wake up soaring with a weird feeling of missing time. But other than that... Christ, the man sighed. I have a teenage son. I'd hate to think. Well, like I said, that thing we fragged in the cave could worm its way back at any time. And anybody under 20 or so can have their brain scrambled by its frequencies. Near boy. Throughout the whole blood-chilling conversation... The woman had been playing fetch with Monster. What do you think we ought to do with the pub? Well, we can't take him with us. The man shrugged as he turned to go. But look at this rich neighborhood. One of the civvies get the go-ahead to come out of their houses and somebody sees this golden boy playing in the yard. He'll get adopted faster than you can say, Nyarlathotep. You got a dog, Simmons. I did when I was a kid, and now that brings back memories, uh... I should have stayed in my hometown and been a mechanic like my old man. Their boots crunched in the glass as they walked off, but their words kept ringing in my ears for a long time. Neutralize. What the heck did that mean? What were these weird troopers doing to the civvies like me or Sammy or Caden if they caught us outside? But they inject us with some sort of drug to make us forget. Haul us off to some unofficial prison with black bags over our heads. Or would they just shoot us on sight? It was an important question because those two blacked boot soldiers had come from the same path that Caden and Sammy had taken. I lay my cheek against the cool asphalt. It smelled like tar, dirt, and being alive. A week ago, I never would have imagined myself like this. Hungry, exhausted, and barely able to walk. Face down beneath Sammy's car, only a few blocks away from my own home. There was no point in moving now, not with those two paramilitary goons on the loose. I reckoned I might as well get a bit of shut-eye. Oh, was that a sprinkler system? From where I lay beneath Sam's car, I could see a man in a bathrobe and pajamas, sniffing the air nervously before walking to the end of his driveway to collect his newspaper. Leaning forward a little more, I caught a glimpse of a young couple pushing their toddler down the sidewalk in a stroller that probably cost more than my first car. The sky was light blue, and the sun was in the east. I had slept for over 24 hours. After limping over to take a leak behind the cover of the trees, I turned back to the bizarre sight of my neighborhood. Bizarre because it was completely normal. No young folks hunted in packs or lay face down in anybody's grass. People were starting up their cars, taking out their garbage, and mowing their lawns like none of what Kate and Sammy and I had endured had ever happened. Howdy, neighbor. Trevor Bolden, a guy my own age who talked my ear off every time I saw him on one of my walks, waved cheerfully to me. He was trimming his rose bushes. 
Neck of a scare yesterday, huh? I never expected something like that would happen in my neighborhood. Of course, ever since that new mayor took over, this town's gone straight to crap. He rambled on. My aching head only caught the key words. A dangerous chemical spill on the highway. A cloud of a dangerous gas. Important to cover all doors and windows. Especially dangerous for young people. Toxins that may cause muscle soreness and affect memory. It finally hit me. What I was hearing was the story that they had all been told to keep them inside while those black armored troops got down to business in the woods behind the neighborhood. Whoever was behind this not only had access to military-grade tech, but they had also convinced the media to report completely false information. It was a lot to take in. Trevor, I finally cut in. This is sort of embarrassing, but I was out for a walk and I hurt my leg. Reckon you could give me a ride back to my place. It's only a few blocks down. Six minutes later, I was waving goodbye to Trevor from my own front porch. He was still talking when he drove off. It felt like a lifetime since I had been inside my own house. I called Sammy and then Austin again, but no answer. I looked up Caden's parents' phone number, but on the fifth ring, I realized that anything I said would sound as suspicious as well. I wondered what Monster was up to. With nothing better to do, I got a cold beer from the fridge, limped over to my recliner, and put on another black and white war movie. And I waited. It came late at night, just like before. A noise from my front door. I grabbed my revolver and hobbled over to it. Peering through the peephole, I wonder how many hooded figures that I would see on my stoop, and how long it would be before they smashed in through the windows. When I saw who was on the porch, I opened the door so fast that I dang near fell over. Monster came bounding in, shedding golden hair everywhere, and Sammy and Caden were behind him. You're alright, Sammy hugged me. What happened to you two? We were about halfway down the trail when we heard voices. Two people talking into the radios, Caden explained. They looked like, I don't know, like soldiers from the future. Me and Sammy got off the trail and hid in a ravine while they passed. Yeah, they looked like bad news, Sammy added. We were worried about you, all alone back there and when we came out of the woods and saw the window broken and you gone. We didn't know what to think. Yeah, the area around the cave was sealed off, Caden went on. There were guys in hazmat suits, searchlights, plastic tents. It was like a scene from a movie. We got out of there as fast as we could, and then when we came back, it was like none of it had happened at all. I finished for him. You see, I reckoned that at first, people didn't want to believe that the silent kids were real. Later, they were afraid to admit the truth, and now they've forgotten all about it. Maybe it's easier for him that way. I looked from Sammy to Caden and to Monster. Only a few days ago, we had been strangers. But now, for the first time in a long time, I was standing side by side with friends. Whatever dangers might come to our town from now on, I knew we'd face them together. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.